being reminded of the role that we play with a fatherless Lord. We all need fathers in our life. That was your design, God, not ours. And yet we find many children without that. And Lord, I pray that we, one way or another, would be involved with those who need a father figure. And not just one to fill in the time, but one that points them to Jesus. And so we pray for that ministry. Thank you for Michael. We thank you for worship, being able to sing praises to you, Lord. That is the privilege of a believer. We get to sing to a living God, not a dead God, not, not a changing God that moves and shapes in different forms. We have a, a living, true God who is immutable. He does not change because he does not need to change. And so we thank you that we could sing such sweet hymns. Lord, we thank you for those who are here, but we do that we are reminded of those who can't be. There are some going through difficult times, Lord. And even now, maybe some at home watching, we pray that, Lord, you would minister to them in a special way this morning. Bless those that are here, Lord. Thank you for the commitment to the church. So important. This is the greatest organization ever created. It'll never fail because you're the head of it, Lord Jesus. And so may we be dedicated to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin to look into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and what a blessing it is to be pouring into this book, thinking deeply about it. And there's so much to learn from the churches in uh, the New Testament. Uh, We spent a great deal of time, a couple years together in 1 Corinthians. They're learning about a lot of things not to do. Uh, a lot of difficult things that were happening, although very applicable to today. A lot of churches are engaging in some of those things that the church in Corinth were being rebuked for. But that is not the case in First Thessalonians, or in fact, the Thessalonica church. This is a church that Paul praises greatly. This is a church to learn from, to find out how we become a church or remain becoming or continue to become a pleasing church to God. He loved this church. And when you study it, we get these pastoral, intimate communication with this church that, uh, and through the word of God, the inspiration of the word of God, to peek under the surface a little bit of a church that's dedicated to Christ. And I continue to learn from it. I want to give you just some way of introduction, some, some areas that I think we'll see. And it's a good check for us. I want you to think about it personally, these, these ideas, these truths that are going to come out of this text. And then think corporately. How are we doing personally when I, when I go through these things? And then how are we doing corporately? It's good to think about that. It's good to take a little test every once in a while. Well, number one, we see that they were a devoted church. They were a devoted church. Paul praises them in chapter 1, verse 3, that they had faith that produced works. Not works that produce faith, but faith that produced works. They were love-driven. We'll talk about this in coming weeks. Um, They have a steadfast love in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what made them a devoted church. They were a submitting church. Verse 6 says that they became imitators of us, Paul says, speaking of those men who brought the gospel to them, and of the Lord. And this church is birthed in trials. We'll see that a little bit today. It's birthed in tribulation and troubles. And yet they submit it to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and its leaders. They were a church planting church. Without hesitation, they gave up their leaders to go plant other churches. They gave up their best men to leave that church to go plant churches. They were a church planting church. You see that in verse 8, that they were the word of what was going on there sounded forth from all over the place what they were doing. Men were carrying that. They were a repentant church. Verse 9 tells us they turned from idols and they openly declared their allegiance to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They repented of their sins. They were a a serving church. Verse 9 tells us they served the living God. And so that caused them to serve one another. One of the things you'll see about them is they had a deep love for one another and they served one another. They're also a very hopeful church. They lived in the light of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ who rescued them, verse 10, from the wrath to come. They lived in light of a returning Savior. Oh, we can get so lost so quickly on daily things and we forget that the Lord Jesus could show up at any moment. I hope your eschatology believes that. That's the way the Bible speaks, an imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a word-saturated church. 
word-centered and word-saturated. There's no way they could have, you can explain, this rapid growth at this church house, how they, how they turn from absolute worldliness and make Christ their king if they were not word-saturated. They believed in the world. You'll see that in several different places throughout our lessons. They were also a persecuted church. Ooh, that might be an area we're not yet experiencing. But they were persecuted from the very beginning. They're, one of their great leaders, Jason, and we'll see him in a little bit here, we'll talk about him, is drug out of his house as they look for the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Sabanius. The church started in that. The Bible says in, their, in his second letter to Thessalonians, in verse, chapter 1, verse 40, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecution. This was a persecuted church and they held together. That's something that we're yet to see, I think. What's going to happen when they drag us out of our homes? When they drag us out of our churches? Well, another reason for that is they were an uncompromising church. They're an uncompromising church. Chapter 3, verse 8, Timothy reports back that they were standing firm. Middle of persecution, middle of rejection by the city uh, that they lived in, they were standing firm on the gospel. They were a God-pleasing church. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul tells them that they are to live in light of pleasing God, and they were doing it, and he, and he, and he, he praises them for doing it, and then he says, but excel still more. See, I think Christians, we can get comfortable. Oh, hey, we got this going. We look at all the things we got going. Look at all this ministry we got going. Excel still more. The day is almost done. Night is coming. That's the message of Jesus. And so they were a church that, yes, wanted to please God, but they would excel still more. And then, uh, there's many more, but one more I just thought of. A, they're a loving church. They loved one another. And their love for one another is mentioned throughout the entire letter. And then yet they're challenged to live out that love of God and still excel more, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. And there's many more lessons that we'll learn as we go through this. So these are just a few that we begin to say, God, are we a church like that? Could a letter be written about our church in all of those areas? Do we have those biblical traits? Are we that spiritually healthy church? Now, as we think about this, I want to turn your attention to verse 1. And I want to turn your attention to the shepherding nature of the Apostle Paul. He was a great shepherd. And uh, he worked for the greatest shepherd. And so you see this come out in many ways. Number one, let's look at a couple of thoughts here this morning briefly. Paul's love for making disciples and shepherds. Paul's love for making disciples and shepherds. Look at the very first verse with me. Paul and Servanius and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Well, brothers and sisters, Paul loved this church. And ever since he left it, his goal was to get back to it. That's when you know you love somebody. You can't, you can't wait to be back with them. Many couples I've counseled through the years as they prepare for marriage, I said, you know, there's a night coming where you will not have to say goodnight on that phone any longer. Because you love to be together. Paul was that way with this church. From the time he left, he constantly spoke about how he was going to return. On his third missionary journey, Luke records in Acts chapter 9, verse 21, Luke's recording, it says, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after, only after, he passed through Macedonia. He was not going up to Jerusalem until he could go see those believers again in Thessalonica. That was his goal. We know he sent Timothy and Erastus back to him, constantly sending his trained men to check on that church and help them. And even while he was imprisoned, in his first imprisonment, he showed repeated zeal, I'm going to get back to Thessalonica. Though we don't have Acts 29 written, <laughs> uh, many theologians believe he got back there before his death. Now, he was, a, he was a disciple maker, and he was a shepherd, and he loved to do that. And we see those men come out of this ministry. Paul produced many leaders, many disciples, many shepherds out of them. Men like Jason, I just already spoke of him. He was a Hellenistic Jew, uh, excuse me, a Hellenistic Greek. Uh, and so there were problems between, but yet God chose this man. And even by his name, Jason, it was a Hellenistic Greek form of Jesus or Joshua. 
by name he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know he suffered in our passage we looked at last week in Acts chapter 17. He's drug out of his house. He's there protecting um, the Apostle Paul and the gospel going forward. He was willing to die for that church. And so we see men like Jason come along and be men of faith for this church. We, we find other men like Gaius of Macedonia. Now, he's not to be confused with Gaius of Derby, Gaius of Corinth, or Gaius, the friend of the Apostle John. We find him in the third letter of John. This was a Gaius that came from Thessalonica. This man was seized with Paul in Ephesus. See, when you find these men, you go, man, these guys are committed. They could have easily said, hey, yeah, Jesus is cool. You know, that's good, but I'm not dying. I'm not going with you, Paul. You've been beat, stoned, shipwrecked, left for dead. I'm not going with you. But when you find men that God's calling to the ministry, they don't care. They are now going to be like their chief shepherd who will lay down their life for the flock. And you find Paul raising men out of this particular church over Noah's. Another man that we may not hear a lot about is Secundus. Secundus. Secundus was a man, another Greek name, that we find him trailing with Paul in his third missionary journey, Acts chapter 20, a man we know very little about, but we know that he left his family, left everything there to be a part of Paul's third missionary journey. Aristarchus is another man mentioned. He's seized with Gaius and Paul in Ephesus during those great riots. He went on to travel throughout the third missionary journey of Paul. He went to Rome with him, and he eventually was detained in prison, according to to Philemon, verse 24, with him. And then finally, and there's more men that surely are not mentioned in the Bible, but finally we come to a man named Demas. Demas was raised up in the Thessalonica church. He's an actually very interesting study. When you study Demas, most of us remember that he forsake Paul in the end, right? You remember that, don't you? It's right at the end of his last letter, um, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, somewhere around verse 12. Paul says, he's forsaken me for this world. And so there are Demases that are there. But, but when you see Demas early in his ministry, we find him in places like Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. There he's serving side by side with Paul. Something happens to him. Pressures of the world. Pressures to move away from the truth for whatever reason he abandons. But here you have this list of men. Now, 1 Thessalonians um, verse 1, notice there are two very special recognized men. First, we have Savanius. The Bible starts out this, Paul and Savanius and Timothy. He's only called Savanius three times in the scriptures. But he's referred to Silas, and you heard Jason, Pastor Jason, and he's reading, he automatically, you kind of think Silas, right? Because that's what we hear of him 13 times through the book of Acts. That's his name that he's used to. And that's, I think that's that friendship that he had with Paul. Oh, this isn't Sylvanius, this is Silas. This is my buddy. He is a very special man, a very special disciple of Paul's from this um, time to go on this missionary journey with him. You remember, we looked at this last week, he was a leading man in the church of Jerusalem. There he was selected by those elders to go back up to Antioch to say, here's what the elders decided, how, what we're going to put on the Gentiles who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, they weren't supposed to eat, drink the blood or strangled and, you know, or immorality and those type of things. And, and Silas, Savanius here, was selected because he was a godly man to go up and carry that message. And he went up with Paul and Barnabas and he stood boldly before the councils in Antioch and proclaimed that. Now, Silas himself was a Roman name, um, Silvanius, and he was a Roman citizen. That was important. Paul was a Roman citizen, and that played out very important in Philippi. And, you're, and just think about this. Paul selects him. That, that tells us a great deal out of all the men. Remember, John Mark had faded on him, and there became that debate between Barnabas and John Mark, uh, and Barnabas and Paul, and it was a, remember that, it was a tension, there was heavy tension between two godly men, whether this guy's going to go with us. Paul was not about to take someone who was going to compromise, who was going to say one thing and do another thing. He was not going to do that. And so he takes Silas with him, and out of all the men that would have been in those two cities, Jerusalem and Antioch, this says something about this man. He was a special man. We know that because he suffered in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, he's in jail. He's beat with rods. He's 
he's cuffed, he's behind bars, he's doubtlessly beat up, and he's singing praises to the Lord. And he's there when that jailer comes to know Christ. He's there when that family comes to know. He's with Paul when Lydia comes to know Christ. He's there at the birth of that. This is a very special man willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, it is the mark of a young man going into ministry. He's ready to say, I'll, I'll give up these things that, that are there, these worldly accolades, the things that I can get, what I am rightfully could do by my own gifting that God has given me, and I'll lay it down, and I'll even lay down my own stripes for the Lord. He's a special man. And I think he was extremely faithful partner to Apostle Paul throughout his missionary journeys. Silas also had a very close relationship with Peter. If you read at the end of 1 Peter, chapter 5, somewhere around verse 12-ish in there, Peter accredits him to recording his letter. This man is a special man. He is a man that the, the highest in the early church, because you know, the elders in Jerusalem were setting the course for the church as it spread, the, those men saw him as worthy of carrying the gospel. Well, certainly we have one more here, Paul Silvanus and then Timothy. He is the final member of the ministerial trio here. And probably Paul's chief disciple when we study him. He runs with Paul the longest, according to the scriptures. He even has two inspired letters written to him, entitled in his name. And in both those letters, both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul says this about him. My true son. It wasn't his biological child. But that's how close. And when you, when you serve with a man that way, you look to him as your spiritual father. And as Paul looked at Timothy as his spiritual son, many believe he was converted from hearing Paul's preaching on his first missionary journey. That would have been Acts 13 and 14. But life wasn't easy for this young man. He had a believing Mother and grandmother that were Jewish, but he had what we believe to be an unbelieving Greek father. He did not have the spiritual upbringing that we've been talking about even in the service. But Timothy remained faithful to Christ. He trails Paul from Acts 16 all the way to 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's with him. And God blessed that very much. He joined Paul in that second missionary journey and ended into his third. He was in his house arrest in Rome. He sent to Ephesus to pastor one of Paul's church plants of all the people. Ephesus is probably one of the most uh, uh, proclaimed churches, most um, well-known. Paul sends Timothy to pastor it. He is not only named here in 1 Thessalonians, but he's named in the Letters to Corinth, he's named in the letters to Philippi, he's named in the letters to Colossae, he's named in the letter to Philemon, and he's named in the letter to Romans. Paul says, I have no one better to send to you. What a statement. Would you like to be that person where someone says, I have no one better than you to send to you. That's what kind of man this was, and this is the kind of men that God wants us to raise up. Hebrews tells us that he went to prison and was probably released after the death of Paul. Isn't that challenging? Remember, he says, look, Timothy, um, God did not give you the spirit of weakness, right? He gave you the spirit of power. Paul, Paul's in jail. It looks like that's the end. And, and, and Paul challenges this young man, stand firm. And he does. He goes to prison for it. We don't know the death of Timothy. There's no history of where he went, but we know he went to prison and he was faithful, most likely, to the end. The Bible says in Acts chapter 16 that Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra, and, he, and a disciple was there named Timothy. And he was the son of a Jewish woman and a, a Greek father, it says. But then it says this. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He's not only well-spoken in his church at home, he's spoken in several churches. This man was dedicated. He was not the bold preacher probably Paul was. He's a little more on the timid side, but this man loved Jesus and Paul loved him. One of the letters, when you go to the first letter that was written to him, I ask you to turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
verses 6 through 16 were verses when I began into ministry at a very young age became being verses that I lived on. My mentor directed me to these verses and I began to digest them constantly. And young men today in this room, I ask you to think with me as I go through this. And maybe some of you older guys, there's a huge movement within second career people going into the ministry, becoming elders, missionaries overseas. Uh, all kinds of things are happening with older men as well. And this is a great challenge. First five verses are Paul pointing out the apostasy and how hypocrisy works and how conscience gets seared and, and, and this list of don't marry and don't eat this and do nothing and all that stuff. He goes through all that and in verse 6 he says, in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's where this begins. What is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you're looking to serve the Lord, these are good things to wonder if you're doing these things. Notice in verse 6, I'm in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Notice this, constantly nourished on the words of faith. You want to you serve the Lord? <laughs> You want to be able to say, okay, God, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I won't take the easy road. I'll take the more difficult one. You nourish yourself on the words of faith. Paul had to leave his, I mean, Timothy had to leave his family. The comforts of a godly mom and a godly grandmother that were caring for him spiritually. He had to walk away from that. He had to walk away from churches he was comfortable in, churches he was having an impact on. He had to walk away from that. And notice it says on sound doctrine. Man, doctrine is not sound today in America. It's as slippery as you've ever seen from church to church. There is a sound doctrine. It is literal. You read it. It's not hard. The Bible's clear on what the Bible says about the Bible. <laughs> what the Bible says about God and Christ and sin and the Spirit. It's clear. It is not hard to understand. You hold to those sound doctrines and you quit trying to read things into it. Timothy was a man that was told to hold on to sound doctrine, which he had been following. Verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, some don't like that statement, but the idea here is worldly wisdom based upon experientialism. That's the problem. So much of the decisions that get made in church are made because of experiences, not truth from the word of God. And we see it moving out. There's a huge movement within the American churches. And many missionaries and many native pastors overseas say, Scott, why is the American church so feminized now? It gets into our music, our preaching, our counseling, gets into all that stuff. Paul told Timothy, look, you don't have anything to do with that. On the other hand, you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You reflect the God who saved you. Look, Olympics and all that were very important at that time, just like they are today, where physical fitness is, is a real important thing. He says bodily discipline is only of little profit. There's value there. You shouldn't neglect the temple. You should take care of it. But godliness, the reflection of your saving God the Father, his, his person and who he is, we should reflect him because we are his children, is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also to the life to come. Isn't that an amazing sin? When we walk with the Lord... It affects those around us. And it affects the future because God says, I'll use that person to share the gospel with the next one. It's such profound wisdom here. Think about this as a young man going to ministry and you start to consume these things. Verse 9 is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. I remember praying over these, studying over these. Oh, Lord, this needs to be me if I'm going to follow you. Verse 10 we do not notice the plurals here. For it is for, it is for this we, Paul uses a plural here, labor and strive. Agonizo. It takes agony to, to follow the Lord at times. Because the rest of the world and, and much of Christianity is not doing that. You have to swim upstream. You have to fight the difficulties of people always basing everything upon their experiences. It's hard to counsel. Because they'll come in and they'll say, Pastor, you just don't understand. You've, you've never gone through a divorce. You, you've, never, you've never done this. You've never done that. You don't understand. Well, yeah, but this does. And, and see, Paul's pushing Timothy back to the word of God. Labor and strive because we are fixed our hope on this living God who is the Savior of all men, especially the believers. Lord, strive for this. 
This is why you get Timothys. This is why you get Silas's. This is why you get Titus's. This is why you get these men that we're so fond of in the scriptures. Notice verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. That's all, those are all commands. Those are imperative verbs there. Prescribe them. Teach them. Don't turn from them. Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Timothy was, was young. Titus was young. Some of these men were young. So what he does, he says, yeah, they're going to call you young, but let them see this. Let them see your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity. Show yourself as an example to those who believe. That's what he calls young men to do. And I think he calls all of us to do that. Maybe you're older, and they, don't let them look down on your, your elderliness. Let them look at your speech, your conduct, your faith, your love, your purity. Let them see you as an example for those who believe. Imagine if we were all this way, what kind of church this would be? What would we be doing with us around the world here and abroad? Verse 13, until I come, listen to this, give attention to the public reading of the scriptures, to the exhortation and teaching. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is such an important comment. The power of the word of God just read publicly. Just read it. Right now we have tr translations that are floating around it that are, are so loose so far from what the original manuscripts taught us. They, they, they're so far away. God's word is so beautiful that Paul says, just read it publicly. You know when you do that, is you, you're saying, I don't need to add anything to it. That's what that says. I can read this publicly to you. It's why we read scriptures, whether it's in our call to worship or our scripture reading time, we just read it to you. And it's so fun to listen to you because I can hear people behind us going, mm, mm. Paul wanted him to have his trust in the word of God. But it isn't just reading it, it's preaching it. Notice the exhortation and the teaching. This is where we use the scriptures to exhort ourselves, to exhort and encourage one another, to teach the truth, verse by verse, word by word, to understand what God says versus what we think. That's the challenge. That's what kind of men this Timothy, this man Timothy was. Verse 14 now he gets personal. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterances with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Well, the presbytery is the leaders. And it's not something really woo-woo here, right? It's men saying, we believe this guy is called from God. You've seen us stand on this, pulp, on this stage with men on their knees, graduations, men going to the ministry, men, men and women going off to the mission field, stand on them and say, we believe God has called this, and they're going to go and serve the Lord for many years. That's not some kind of little, um, you know, show we put on in front of you. It's men saying, we believe these guys are called. These gals are called. They're going. And he says, don't forget that. Somewhere in Timothy's experience, imagine Apostle Paul and Peter possibly, and maybe the elders at Antioch or, or Ephesus or Derby or Lystra or Iconium, somewhere around there stood over this man and laid hands on him and said, this man's going to the ministry. Can you imagine? First century. They're all wearing dresses. These men are committing their lives knowing that it probably will die for this. Look at he does in verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Be consumed with Christ and his word. Be consumed with the flock. Love Christ, love his word, love his people. And it'll be evident. You drop one of those out, it won't be evident. Verse 16, play close attention to yourself, Timothy. And not only to yourself, but your teaching. Isn't that interesting? What is happening with American church today where we're abandoning the teaching of the word of God? They're not paying close attention to their own hearts, to their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that makes them begin to compromise in the word of God. It doesn't take hard to talk to our missionaries around the world and say, what's going on over there? Why is the church going this direction? Paul says, you better pay close attention to yourself and then your teaching persevere in these things. Hang on. When, when, when it feels like you're more out of season or in season, however you want to take that, press on. Preach the word. And as for you, do this with, well, as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Faithful life, faithful message. Faithful life, faithful message. This is Timothy. 
our dear brother. As you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, just, just a couple thoughts, just brief on this book. Um, Paul is the human author here. He's moved, of course, by the Holy Spirit. It's only been recently liberal scholars have doubted whether this was Paul. It says Paul, the very first word, but they still doubt it because they don't believe the Bible. That's nothing new. It's written about a year after he was there. So we believe he landed in Thessalonica in the fall of 49 AD. A year later from Corinth, (laughs) that very challenging place, remember how hard that was dealing with that church. He's writing to a church he loves dearly a year later and they receive this letter. Many believe that this is Paul's probably second inspired epistle, Galatians being the first one, and he goes on to write 13 more known canonical letters that are inspired by God. In Dallas, he wrote many more letters with great truth in them, great spiritual value, but he chose this one to inspire. Church is made up of some Jews that were saved at the synagogue and mostly God-fearing Greeks. Number two, Paul, Paul's love for the church flowed from the heart of a shepherd. Paul's love for the church flows from the heart of a shepherd. Notice the rest of the verse says, to the church, this is very important here, the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the purpose and theme of 1 Thessalonians is just saturated throughout Paul's shepherding heart. He just has this shepherding heart for this church. And once he was separated, he longed to get back to them. And you'll see in his shepherding comes out in many ways. Notice he calls them the church of Thessalonians. This is the ecclesia, the, the spiritual assembly of God's people in a particular geof- geographical location. You are the church. That means you are the called out ones. You are God's flock. He, he is not writing to some other group that distinguishes themselves as whatever club. He's writing to the church, and that's so important. It, the church is God's bride, and Paul knew that. He, he built his whole instruction around marriage, around that, that understanding that Christ laid down his life for the bride. This was a special group of people, and Paul understood that. Notice he says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I think he's just spiritually distinguishing them between the Jews of the synagogue. They, they would say, hey, we're of God the Father. Paul says, no, the church of Thessalonica is of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The ruler, the, the, the Messiah, and the one who became man for our sake. It's quite a statement. And he makes it known to them. And so this was not some civil group or political gathering or some legalistic religious group that gets together. This was the church. They were the chosen, redemptive group of people in that area that God claimed for himself for eternity. And that given that special name, the Church of Thessalonica. I love that. And it reminds me how special every group is. The combining of the Father and the Son, I think, just speaks of the equality of Jesus. He combines, he puts a chi in there, which is the Greek word for and, and, and often shows, associates equality. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Equality. Speaks of his deity. And remember, they would not, the Jews of that day, and many people, just like today, reject that Jesus is God. And so he puts it right in their title. And he brings in the entire Trinity to verse 5. We'll see the Holy Spirit brought in there and how the Holy Spirit works. And so the whole Trinity is in the first five verses. As he speaks to this. Now, look at the good shepherding that he does um, over this letter. Just flow with me as we kind of look at an overview of the letter. Paul starts it with just praising them, right? He, he, praises, he prays for them and he praises them in the first uh, verses 2 through 10 there in chapter 1. He's always reminding them that they belong to God and God chose them and their conversion was evident. Then Paul, in his shepherding way, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, there he begins to talk about his shepherding uh, protection of them as, as he was being charged with allegations. Because remember, if you charge him with allegations, you're charging that church with it. And he goes through this whole dissertation in verses 1 through 2 in chapter 2 of protecting this church as he shares who he is and what God has done and shares how much he loves this church. He, he shepherds them through, through their suffering and persecution. And in chapter 2, 13 through 16, Paul was there to shepherd them and comfort them as they were persecuted. He knew persecution. He knew the battles of the mind and the heart, what would go on. He was constantly with them as they suffered. 
chapter 2, 17 through chapter 3, 13, there, I'm, I'm taking bigger chunks, there we have this gospel-centered, Christ-exalting way of, of expressing the joy he had in their salvation. And he knew it, and their personal reports were coming back to him and how they were living for the Lord Jesus in difficult times. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, here he begins to shepherd the church through immoral attacks. Immoral attacks that were constantly coming. They were a threat because they were part of the religious fabric of life there. And so he lovingly challenges them to remember their moral purity as part of their progressive sanctification. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God. That's so boldly marked in my Bible. If you want to come see it, I'll show it to you. Because when you see the Bible say, this is the will of God, don't you go, (laughs) what is it? I want to know. Look what it is. Verse 3, your sanctification, explain, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. They're being constantly plagued with it. Sound like it happened today? I mean, today it's just everywhere. Sexual immorality is so prevalent in America, it's, it's celebrated. Well, listen, it was part of their culture, a part of their families, a part of their religions. Prostitutes were regularly part of the religious world they lived in. It was everywhere. And so he loves them and shepherds them through and says, hey, stay away from that. Young men, young women, it's ruining homes before you get one. It's destroying families. Still around today, and God, through his word, warns us, and here's a church heeding that warning, learning to stay away from those things that destroy what God has set apart Chapter 4, 9 through 12, Paul was always shepherding them to greener pastures. He was instructing them to love one another, but excel still more. Keep going. Lead quiet lives. Be hard workers. Remember, there's a man he's going to have to address in the second letter that isn't working. Listen, here's how we got to deal with this. We love this guy, but if he's not going to work, don't let him eat. You want to be a bum and hang around the church? There's instruction for you. (laughs) Get a job. Be a productive part of this church. If you don't have a job, how are you going to give to the church? You know, how are you, how are you going to serve? How, what do you have? You, you, how, where's your testimony in the world? You're a missionary to the world. Every one of us are a missionary to whatever street you live on, whatever job you're at, you're a missionary there. But if you don't have a job and you don't have a home and you don't have some of those things, now, granted, there are difficult things that hit people, but that's what we do, right? That's where our benevolence is fun and how we come in. But to live a life that is not quiet in this world. Too many Christians are too loud, too loud. He says, live a quiet life, be hard workers. What a great lesson. What a great lesson to be reminded of a church. They should say, that church, they are not a bunch of people that are just taking, taking, taking. That's a church that gives, gives, gives. That's what we should be known for. Paul saw every aspect of eschatology as he gets into chapter 4, 13 through 5, 11. He sees every aspect of eschatology as a message of hope. When you study him, and, I, and guys just want to twist this all the time, be very careful. Paul speaks of great hope. He speaks of great hope for those who have already died. He speaks of great hope for those waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. He speaks of great hope for those who have suffered injustices, that there is one coming who will judge the living and the dead. He, 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 eschatology is built around the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does such a great job with that. Listen, he even, he even knows that even a good church, there's tension between the shepherds and the flock. And so he reminds them to have a good relationship, the ones who are given charge over you and care for those who are struggling, chapter 5, 12 through 15. And then Paul just exhorts these Christians to live out their faith, 16 through 22. And then finally he closes out that letter with this Christ-like loving affirmation of them and telling them to live in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we study this letter word by word, verse by verse, you will see the shepherd's heart of Paul. He loves his flock, but he teaches them, and he's unashamed of it. And their response is to love him and to love the shepherd. Last thought, Paul's shepherding theme of grace and peace. Notice he says, as you turn back to chapter 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Well, after identifying the recipients, um, the men that are with him, 
their union with the Father and the union with the Son, he turns with this very common theme, and it can almost be too common, and I don't want you to miss it this morning. Grace to you in peace. What a statement. You know, when you study Paul, it is such a major theme of him when it comes to grace. We sang of that in that, one of those last songs. You know, Paul speaks of grace in one form and another 115 times within his 13 epistles. Grace is a major theme. He, he, he's identified. He's identified with his ministry. He saw himself as a trophy of God's grace. He writes to Timothy in, in his first letter, chapter 1, 14 and 15. He says, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Then he says this. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am what? Chief, worst, foremost, right? The word, the Greek word is protos. First in line is the idea. Jews of Jesus Christ as being first. I'm the first in line of the sinners. And his grace was more than abundant for me. Paul loves to speak on this. When you think about Apostle Paul and you think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you win saved, there's no doubt we know Paul said that, Right? We connect Paul with that statement because he understood he was saved by grace through faith. He knew it wasn't of himself. He knew it was a precious gift from God, and he loved it, and so there was no way he would boast and take that from God. He held on to grace with all of his might, and he spoke often of that unmerited favor, that divine benevolence of God. Think about that. Grace is a benign a, a, a divine benevolence from God. He gives it to us. It's a gift. It cannot be bought. It cannot be sold. It, it cannot be worked for. It is a benevolence gift from the Almighty through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it captured. And, just, and look at this, just that little phrase, grace to you. Oh, don't miss that. It's extremely personal, isn't it? If you're saved in this room, you know this, don't you? That's my grace. That's the grace God gave to me. And it's individual. He doesn't just say, well, I'll just throw some grace out on Riverbend. All of them will get saved. That's not how it works. It is grace to you, sinner. (laughs) You needed to be saved, and you had no other way to do it on your own. So it's grace to you. It's grace to me. And so it means a lot. And so he opens every letter with these terms because he lived in light of grace day in and day in out. He was birthed in it in his spiritual life and he died in that grace and lives forever in that grace. There's one other term just in closing that's very precious to the apostle and that's peace. Peace is a fruit of grace and certainly the fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? If you don't have grace, you don't have peace. You say, well, how do you know? Because you're still at war with God. There's just no other way around it. You're still under the wrath of God if you don't have grace, you don't have peace, and you stay under the wrath of God. It's a terrible, terrible thing to think about. That means your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your whoever else remains under the wrath of God without his grace. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we live the gospel. Because peace is so important. Paul, just after he makes that great statement, for by grace you've been saved, verse 14, chapter 2 of Ephesians says, for he, Jesus Christ himself, is our peace. No Jesus, no peace. You understand that? So every religion that doesn't teach that he's God, every religion that doesn't put him as the head of the church, you know, I were just reading out of her Catholic Bible that she was given as a baby, we are reading what they say, their authority over the church. They, they have robbed God, the Lord Jesus Christ, of his authority over the church. It's clear in their documents. You want to be at war with God? You try to take Jesus Christ out of the scenario. You still remain in him. He is the only way to the Father. There's no other way, the Bible says. So Jesus Christ puts an end to this war between us and God. Thank God. Isn't that great? I mean, it's, that's a fight you're not going to fin- finish, right? You're not going to win that one. Okay, God, we're going to do it my way. Uh, you're going to hell. There's, there's no other way. Jesus put an end to that war. There's no longer, think about this, there's no longer hostility between the living God of the Bible and me. That war started at the fall. It brought God's wrath, but it is no longer my battle. 
I don't have to war with God any longer. The Prince of Peace of Isaiah 9, 6 is here. He hasn't finished all of his peace work, but he's finished it when it pertains to salvation. He's done it. And we're at peace through his finished work. And the Holy Spirit produces a now a peace within our lives that's true of all believers. And then we realize how he did that. Verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and following. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Just take a breath there. Let me read that again and just take a breath as I close out that statement. Therefore, having been declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone as the idea We have peace with God. You have peace with God. The other day I was somewhere and there was a plaque on the ground and it said, rest in peace. I stood over that plaque and I thought, man, I beg you, God, that this person knows you because there is no resting in peace for that soul. We only rest in peace because we rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he attained that through his finished work on the cross and we put our faith in him alone, no one else. And if you're here today, brothers and sisters, friends that are are just here visiting or listening online, if you don't have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ where your faith alone, your God-given faith is put in Jesus, you are still at war with him. And I plead with you to bend your knee to him now. Do not go another moment. Do not go another day. You will end up under his heavy hand of judgment. Well, Paul begins with peace. And if you look at chapter 5, just flip over there, verse 23, he ends in peace. This is how he ends this book. He begins with peace, grace and peace, and here he ends it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. So his peace helps us be sanctified. Set apart for him, right, is the idea. Hagias, sanctification, set apart for him. And may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to the end of 2 Thessalonians, just over another page, chapter 3, verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself continue to grant you peace in every circumstance. Ooh, grace and peace. We have nothing better than that. It's the mark of a believer. You have grace for salvation. You have peace with the Almighty. Father, thank you for a few minutes in your word today, Lord. We treasure this time. We treasure every word, every verse that you've given to us. May we claim this, Lord, as as a gift from you. And may we hold it tightly and, and, and memorize it and hide it in our hearts, Lord. Father, raise up men in this congregation, men who are ready, willing and ready to preach the gospel. Raise up godly women who will support them and walk with them. Raise up singles who will give up ambitions of marriage and everything else if you so ask to go and be a part of the gospel spreading around the world. Raise up second career missionaries, second career church planners who are willing to die to comfort And say, Lord, I want to finish well. Lord, help us be a church that resembles the church in Thessalonica. And may you get all the glory for what we do and say and sing here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, may God call us to holiness, right, church? To be obedient. Um, Let's stand and let's sing as we um, respond to what we just heard. It was finished upon the cross.
time death was once my great opponent? ask for a better closing song. Thank you, Hayward. In our benediction, I just want to read those closing verses. Bow your head with me and listen to the word of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen.